take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 51 this morning. Psalm 51. Though we're not in 2 Samuel, we are still continuing our series. Um, This text, as you know, as you will see, fits directly in uh, what we are learning from 2 Samuel. We wanted to spend um, a Sunday looking at this text. It is a massive text in its value and in its importance. There's no way can truly cover it all in one sermon. So we'll look at a large portion of it and see the themes that it's bringing out to us. Um, and then next week we'll look at 2 Samuel 13. A Lifeway survey from several years ago revealed that Americans have some very interesting and deficient views of sin. This was true even among professing believers. In that study, two-thirds agreed that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. More than half said that it would be fair for God to show his wrath against sin. Just over half. Few Americans seem to think that most sins put them in any real spiritual danger. Three quarters of those surveyed disagreed with the idea that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. To some Americans, saying you're a sinner is just a way of admitting you're not perfect. To those, it doesn't necessarily mean you're evil or that you should be punished for your sin. The question is, how do you tend to view sin? More personally, how do you tend to view your sin? And I don't mean what kind of answers would you give to a survey like this, but functionally, practically, day by day, how do you treat your sin? Another author writes, the most important truth about sin is the one least recognized in our day. It is this. All sin is primarily against God. The most important truth about sin is the one least recognized in our day. All sin is primarily against God. Do you agree with that statement? Do you live that statement? As you think about your sin, ask yourself, who am I more concerned about offending? Another person? Say your spouse, a co-worker, a fellow church member, or God himself? Does this really matter? If we're to understand the seriousness of our sin... If we're to help ourselves fight sin the way that scripture teaches us to, we must have a God-centered, word-informed view of our sin. Now, I want you to understand just how important and valuable this text is to your growth and the growth of others in your life. This, This view of God and sin will change everything about you from the inside out. It is the key, the linchpin, the keystone habit to sanctification. 
If we're to faithfully parent our children and lead them to God, we must understand the nature of our hearts, of our sinful hearts, and accurately point our children to God as the one true remedy. It isn't just behave better. Take on better habits. Don't annoy me so much. That's not the problem. If we would be a godly, faithful spouse, this is the language. We must understand and embrace when we talk to each other about the conflict and sin that's happening in our homes, in our hearts. If we would be a godly friend and fellow member in this church, this is the pathway to Christ-likeness we must understand. Now we turn to this text this morning in order to get a fuller understanding of David's repentance and restoration from God. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. And in a sense, as we looked at that text, it's rather abbreviated when you think about it, isn't it? That's it? David showed their remarkable humility and clarity in his repentance. But even more remarkably, Nathan says that God has forgiven David. But they're capital crimes. This should leave us with a few more questions, shouldn't it? This should stir within us the desire to know how David has seemingly changed so dramatically. He sinned in such blatant, self-centered, blinded ways. What's changed? So that when Nathan says such strong, confrontational words to him, he doesn't push back, he doesn't equivocate, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Maybe most importantly, how could God, how could God move on so quickly from these sins? Did he really? Psalm 51 tells us the rest of the story and places our focus again on the God who forgives. Our text will teach us this morning that our God is a forgiving God. And I pray that you will not see that as some minor thing that's just a part of our Christianese, the language of Christians. But that is a miracle. That is a miracle. You cannot earn and you certainly don't deserve. Let's look at our text this morning. We'll read verses 1 through 6 as we begin. Psalm 51, verse 1. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, After he, David, had gone into Bathsheba, David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, completely from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let's ask for God's help as we look at this text together this morning. Father, we come before you in great need of your spirit to illumine our hearts to these truths and to the reality of our need. Lord, we are a sinful people. We are bound to it. It is part of our condition. It is inherent in our nature. We cannot escape from it. Help us to see the desperateness of our condition in order that we might see the greatness of your grace. We don't come to wallow in our sin, but to glory in our Christ. May we see him clearly in your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we'll consider our text in three sections. We'll really only focus though on these first six verses. First, we see God's forgiveness begins with repentance. In 2 Samuel 11, David is guilty of both premeditated adultery and premeditated murder. And yet this is not all that David is guilty of before God. One author notes, if anyone ever deserved to be punished in the Bible, it is David. His afternoon stroll on the roof led him to break fully half of the Ten Commandments. He killed, he committed adultery, he stole, he lied, he coveted. And these are just the commands he broke against man. They don't yet include the list of sins he committed against God. And remarkably, we read that David is forgiven. He lives when the law of God requires death for these sins. God had said, if you commit adultery, you should die. God had said, if you murder, you should die. Yet David lives and even remains king. How can this be? How can God be just and forgive a man who's done all these things? Something seems wrong with this, doesn't it? Is God contradicting himself? How does David receive this miracle of forgiveness? This passage serves for us as a pathway to restoration and true spiritual change. Just as we saw in 2 Samuel 12, God's confrontation of David's sin was a gift. His confrontation of our sin is a kindness. So here in Psalm 51, confession is a gift. We learn that we are to understand to whom we must turn. In verse 1, notice where repentance truly begins. Who is the first person addressed in this psalm in verse 1? Now notice I'm not saying who's the first person referred to. Actually the language is maybe a little confusing. It says have mercy on me O God. But really the, the subject is God. Have mercy on me. David begins with an appeal to God and his character. This is the only, only place he can begin. He has no right to come and talk to God at all. And notice that he uses three words, three key words to describe 
God's character. He says, look down again at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. He later says, according to your steadfast love, secondly. And third, according to your abundant mercy. Mercy here refers to God's grace or undeserved favor. The second word highlights God's settled, determined, faithful love. We've talked about that hesed kind of love. That faithful, steadfast love. It's virtually a one-word summary of God's gracious, self-giving character. This is his nature. It's important here to catch the tone of David's pleas as he cries out and pleads towards God's character. Remember in your mind the story of the prodigal son. When do things change for that son? They change when he gains an understanding of his need. Notice how Jesus says this. He says, when he came to himself. It's like he woke up. He got in his right mind. He recognized this isn't working. I can't keep going this way. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. My stupidity of sin has led me here. So he says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There's a desperation in the prodigal son, isn't there? There's a desperation here in David. It's a recognition that there is only one. There's only one person that he can turn to. Here's a man drowning in his guilt and the weight of his sin. He's thrashing about, being carried under the waves of his sin. And all he knows to do is to cry out to God for help. This is a man who radically understands his heart and radically understands the nature of his God. God who is merciful. God who's steadfast in love. The final description David uses for God in verse 1 is he is a God according to your abundant mercy. The form there of this word suggests the compassionate feelings of a parent toward their child. As our children are growing older, we're beginning to experience new things as a family. For us, this has been the first summer that our two younger children have gone off to camp. The first time that they have been away from home and their family for several days. And Jenny and I are beginning to understand what that feels like. I know many of you can relate to that and and know it even more acutely. Thankfully, in God's kind providence, he doesn't have our children move away at 10 and 12 years old. That's a kindness. That would be very hard for, for us. But through this, I have a greater understanding what it is to be separated from my children to feel like the family's not quite whole to long for us to be back together to long for my children to be back under my care and my embrace while they were gone I wanted the week to go by a little more quickly I felt their absence day by day I was eager to hug them when they got home this is a mere fraction of God's compassion for us as his children when we push him away with our sin. 
David says, have mercy according to your steadfast love, according to your tenderly father compassion for me. Our sin loudly declares that we would push God away. We would be sovereign in our lives. And yet God is still faithful to love us. Even when our sin blinds us to his goodness and grace. God's steadfast love is the love to which he obligates himself. I want you to think of that and grasp that truth. God has obligated himself to love David. No matter what he does. No matter how sinful he is. God has pursued David. God loves his children He obligates himself to us. Can you see here that God forgives because he is a merciful and gracious God? Do not think for a moment that this psalm tells you how to somehow manipulate God into forgiving you or giving you a better life or getting you out of a jam that your sin took you into. That's not what this is about in any way. This is about a merciful and gracious God. Do you see how he's revealing himself to you in these three words that David uses? He forgives because he is forgiving to those who offend him. He shows mercy because he is merciful to those who deserve judgment. He loves because he is loving to those who have despised him. In this passage, the Spirit is intent on turning our gaze to the character and actions of our merciful, loving, compassionate God. That's what should make us run to Him. Even when we're guilty, even when we're embarrassed, even when we're crushed by the weight of our sin, knowing who He is should make us run to Him. Just as the prodigal son knew the character of the father when he comes to himself, David knows the character of his heavenly father. He knows it's the only basis of God's merciful character. That's why he prays. Look carefully at the psalm. Do you see how many times he uses the imperative toward God in this setting? How can he have such boldness? Because he knows the character of his God. We also see in verses 1 and 2 that we're to understand the nature of our sin. Next, note how radically honest and clear David is about his sin. He next uses three words to describe his sin in these two verses. Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Transgressions is a potent word. It doesn't mean just stepping over the boundaries of the law. Like the speed limit is 55 and I went 58. It includes intent. It highlights rebellion. In the story of Julius Caesar, as his influence as the general of Rome's army grew, and the tension between him and the Senate intensifies, it was against the law for anyone to cross into Roman territory with an army. Julius Caesar was seeking to return home with his army. For him to do so, though, was to incite civil war. He was intending to take power. 
So he had to decide whether or not he was willing to ignite this kind of conflict. To incite a response from the standing government of Rome. In order to do so, he would have to cross the Rubicon River. Caesar Caesar did cross and the war began. He transgressed that border intentionally. He rebelled on purpose. He knew he was going against the law and he did it on purpose. Alexander McLaren writes of this word, it is not merely then that we break some impersonal law of nature when we do wrong, but we rebel against a rightful sovereign. In order to truly repent of your sin, you have to see it as God sees it. That's what's happening in this psalm. David is revealing to us how God thinks about sin. This is exemplary for how we are to repent and confess. We're to see it as God sees it. We must understand the nature of our sin. With every sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, whether it's known or unknown, is a rebellious act in which we raise our tiny, puny, little human fists in the face of the rightful sovereign of the universe. Every sin is that. It's saying, I want my way. It's saying, no, God, no. It doesn't matter if it's murder or gossip. It doesn't matter if it's adultery or a critical thought. The second word he uses is iniquity. This is a deliberate act of going astray, a wandering away, a deliberate deviation from the right path. The third word is sin. It's more general and more prevalent in this psalm and presents the picture of people aiming at a target and missing it completely. So David looks at his life and recognizes that the problems now there are of his own making, based on his own free choices. And what he's saying with this threefold repetition is his life is filled with sin. The guilt that comes with it and the consequences. And yet, because of his mercy, God will forgive even the worst of our sins if we confess with a humbled heart. Proverbs 28, 13, we've referred to this several times in the last several weeks. Whosoever conceals or covers his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There's a choice. Two paths. Third, we're to understand the radical depth of our sin. David says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions. I understand them. And my sin is ever before me. I feel their presence. It's ever within my range of sight. He sees it for what God says it to be. This is not some morbid overemphasis dwelling upon his sinfulness. This is how God sees it. And David is aligning himself with God's view. And now he says something that's probably a little challenging for us in verse four. He says, against you, you only. There, that repetition is on purpose. It's for emphasis. Against you, 
you are the one I've sinned against and done what is evil in your sight. Now for hundreds of years, careful readers of Psalm 51 have been amazed by David's claim that he sinned only against God. We immediately might be thinking, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah, her husband? What about all those other men that are killed while you're covering up this adultery? Surely David sinned against them, right? Of course he did. Of course he did. David's selfish pursuit of sexual pleasure and emotional intimacy with another man's wife was clearly a sin against Bathsheba, against her husband, against her parents, against Israel. Yet when David says he has sinned only against God, he means that by far the greatest offense has been against God. It's very important for us at this point to understand what is truly at stake even when we sin against others. Theologian D.A. Carson has made the point that in all our sinning, God is invariably the most offended party. You must embrace this view in order to view sin as you ought to and receive the grace God wants to give you. Consequently, all other offenses then compared to what happens toward God pale in comparison. That's the point. Charles Spurgeon saw this clearly. He writes, the virus of sin lies in its opposition to God. The psalmist's sense of sin towards others rather tended to increase the force of his feeling of sin against God. All his wrongdoing centered, cultivated, culminated rather, and came to a climax at the foot of the divine throne. I'll show you from the text in 2 Samuel how this is clarified. But I want to just park on this point for a moment. See, the Spirit of God intends for us to gain a view of our sin from His perspective, not our own. You see, what happens when we see it from our own, we minimize it. We minimize our need and we minimize His grace. We tend to view the severity of sin based on who is affected by it. So David's sin to us is particularly troubling, isn't it? It affected a lot of people. But that is not at all how God views sin. Doesn't mean that David is saying no one's offended or hurt. The horror, though, and greatest evil of our sin is not that it hurts others but that it is an attack against God. And to attack him is infinitely greater than attacking other human beings. I want you to see this in three different ways. Remember when Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to lie about the amount they're giving to the church in Jerusalem. We read this in the book of Acts. What what does Peter say to them? Why did you lie and hold back this money from the church. We could have used that money. This hurt our cause. Is that what he says? He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? But who is their sin really harming? Who is it hurting? No other believers really suffered loss, even if they said they gave more than they had. 
But that's not how God views our sin. They were offending God by saying they were worshiping him sacrificially when they were worshiping themselves and seeking to gain glory for their own name. God says that will not happen. Second, remember how Joseph fights the temptation. This is meant to be fuel for you to fight your sin, to think about it how God does. Remember how he fights temptation to commit adultery with Potter's first wife. He first asks her, how could I sin against your husband? He's given me all this responsibility. But his final and greatest motivation comes when he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? She's saying, nobody will know. He says, God will. And that matters more. And then finally, consider just how offensive the Pharisees are to Jesus, who outwardly look like they're doing good for people. Sin must not, it cannot be viewed from our human spectacles. It must not be viewed horizontally. It must be viewed vertically. If we only measure our sin by how it affects others, we will never truly understand its sinfulness. We will never see our need. And then we can never fully know the mercy and grace God wants to give to sinners. Jesus said, I've not come for the righteous, for those who think they have no need of forgiveness. He says, I've come for the sick. Those who know they're in need of the great physician of their souls. If you only see sin from a temporal human vantage point, hear this carefully. You devalue God. He gave up the life of his son for sins that you say they're not that bad because they're not hurting other people that badly. No, no. They're rebellion in his face. It's cosmic treason. He's to be worshipped and we're saying no. I will be worshipped. And who does that sound like? You have to see the bad news for just how bad it is And that begins when we allow God's word to instruct us, to teach us, to give us God's perspective about the sinfulness of our sin. Again, David says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now that's exactly what the last verse of 2 Samuel 11 had said. When we read it and translate it more directly from the Hebrew, it says the thing that David had done was evil. In the sight of the Lord. David's calling out his sin. With clear. Transparent. Boldness. Using the exact same words that God uses of it. Are you able to speak of your sin that way? When you see God in his glory. In his holiness. In his mercy. In his grace. You're not afraid to call your sin what it is. The second half of verse 4 says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Turn back with me to 2 Samuel 12. I want you to see from verses 9 and 10 how David is meaning this. What is he saying? So that you may be justified. He's saying, God, you're right when you say, I'm sinful, I did evil. God, you're right. Sin is defined from your perspective. 
look carefully at God's conclusions about David's sin down in verses 9 and 10. This is Nathan speaking to him. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? His sin wasn't just horizontal. To do what is evil in his sight. But it's connected, isn't it? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his, his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And notice God's reasoning, his thinking about David's sin. It's there in the last half of 10. Because you have despised me. If David would have viewed God as he had done earlier in the book, would he have sinned in this way? Now in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 51, David describes sin as part of his very nature and as opposed to God's design. He says in verse 5, he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's saying in, in this, he's identifying the depth, the very depths of his depravity. It isn't just that his sinful choices have made him a sinner. We're not sinners just because we choose to sin. David's saying he sinned because sin is a part of who he is. It's a part of his condition. It's in his nature. It's not a spot he can rub out by some performance of worship, by some sacrifices, by some action on his part. And note, he's not excusing his sin in any way. He's not placing his blame on his mother or his parents. He's simply identifying the truth that we are infected with sin from birth. It is our curse, truly. He's declaring he needs to be cleansed, not only from the stain of the particular sins and acts of murder and adultery. He needs to be, he must be changed from the inside out. I must be fundamentally remade. Clarity of the depth of sin highlights the only one who possesses its remedy. Do you see? When you see sin clearly, you see the God who can, for sin, who can forgive your sin. You have to see sin the way that God sees it. Sinclair Ferguson, speaking on this text, said, Nobody receives God's grace who doesn't first feel the weight of their sin. Nobody seeks God's grace who doesn't first feel the weight of their sin. When is the time that you are most desperate for God to work for you as you are relating to sin? When you recognize just how sinful you are. Being in this kind of desperation for God's forgiveness is a gift. Confession is a gift. It's perhaps the clearest moment in our lives when we recognize who we are and who he is. It's potentially our highest moment. So there's to be no more minimizing or relativizing of your sin. There's no compartmentalizing it. I just won't think about it. There's no excusing it. There's no saying it's their fault. I was raised this way. It's my personality. I didn't have enough whatever. Real repentance begins when blame shifting 
ends. This is the view of David here. It's the view of the publican in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And notice also, life-giving repentance begins when self-pity ends. That's also off the table. If you only seek relief because you realize your sin is making you look bad, you're disappointing yourself. You're not living up to the standards you want. Who's still at the center of your thinking? You are. You are. Paul tells us there's a kind of sorrow for sin that does not lead to true repentance. But godly grief over sin focuses on the person offended. Do you see how this is a very Godward psalm? And here is where you find true help for genuine change. You have to stop pushing off the blame for your sin onto anyone else. It's not your spouse's fault. You're not losing your temper with your kids because they're just so disobedient. Your sin is your own. And in order to receive grace, you must meet God in full, transparent confession of your need, of his undeserved mercy. Second, in verses 7 through 12, God's forgiveness includes restoration. For the sake of time, skip ahead down to verse 10. There are three verses in a row that talk about God working in our spirit. But 10 says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Note that word there, that that again, command. God, create. It's the exact same word used in Genesis for God's creation of the world. Do you see what David is saying? God, you must remake me. You have to create something that's not there. That I can't just put on myself. You must do this work. David's pleading for a complete transformation at the core of his being. If you don't think you need to be made new, you can't be made new. He's saying, God, you must make me new. When we repent, not only should we confess our sins, but we should also ask for God to change us. Like David does here. God, renew my spirit. You promised to give me a heart of flesh. You've given me your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk with you. Change me. Keep doing this work of transformation. God, I'm going to have to come to you again and again. Keep making me new. A.W. Tozer writes a prayer at the end of the first chapter of his famous book, The Pursuit of God. He prays, I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire, O God. The triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, give me new and fuller desires. Renew my spirit. Thirdly, God's forgiveness then produces right worship. Skip down again. We'll just go to verse 17. Where it says, The sacrifices of God, what he wants to see, are not some forms of worship. God's not primarily interested in us showing up and singing the songs with emotion, with feeling. 
He's interested in your heart. Sing with feeling and passion after you've given him your heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite or humble heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do you see, this is the key to any real change. If you don't think you have a problem, you can't get better. But God gives grace to the humble. This is the key to change. Radical, God-centered humility. Because of God's abundant compassion, he will forgive. Even the worst of your sins, sins that no one else knows about, sins that you've struggled with for years, he is ready to forgive you if you confess with a contrite heart. If you say, God, I truly want to be done with these. Change me, forgive me, cleanse me, make me new. Psalm 32, 5 and 6 we heard read. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I'm no longer deceiving even myself. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Now, do you see God's power to change us through repentance? David says back in verse 13 that he will teach transgressors your way. There are three verbs of speaking in those verses. He will sing aloud of God's praises. He will declare the truth. David's not keeping this to himself. He's been radically transformed from being someone who's blinded by his immense sins to one who is humbly willing to allow God's mercy through his sins to be a teaching tool. Do you see what happens when you deal with God and not everybody else in their view of your sin? There's no embarrassment. This is recorded of David for centuries. I don't get the sense that David's insecure in talking about what God has done through his transgressions. These are his private meditations that he's made public to all Israel. And God has used for centuries to teach his people how to come to him. Do you see how God's grace frees us? If God can forgive him and use his sin then as an object lesson for others, then God be praised. How can you get to that point with your own sin and guilt? You have to understand forgiveness. You have to be so carefully and intentionally focused on God's view of your sin. You have to recognize he sees it as far worse than how we tend to see it. And yet at the very same time, while he hates that sin, he hates what it's doing to you, he forgives and restores. For some of you, for some of us this morning, this passage needs to challenge and correct your view of your sin and your sinfulness. You have been stuck for months, maybe for years. You need to spend time meditating on what David is teaching us in this text. You need to run to a God who forgives. You need to embrace his view of your need in order to receive the mercy and grace he wants to offer you. For some, you need to hear this passage and you need to move forward. 
You need to move forward in greater assurance of God's heart, of mercy, and compassion for you. You tend to be overly introspective. And you get stuck and disappointed that you failed again. But that's not David's attitude. Don't stay stuck under the weight of your guilt and your need. Look to Christ and move forward in confidence. This Christian life isn't about making much of us. It's about making much of him. Why be surprised when you realize, I'm a sinner. I'm still a sinner. I need more grace. Run to Christ. Move forward in confidence. Knowing that you will need to repent again. But that Christ will stand ready to forgive you again. And as you understand how merciful and kind and loving he's been to you, it will be the greatest aid to you in fighting your sin. For some, you need to see your need of Jesus Christ as your Savior, perhaps for the first time. Perhaps this is the very first time you've seen your sin as fundamentally against God himself. Perhaps you're starting to understand just how seriously God must view and act against you and your sin. So this morning, turn to him for forgiveness. Or the very frightening news is that otherwise you'll be obligated to face his wrath apart from the mercy of Christ. Our text this morning teaches us that your God delights to forgive even your worst sins when you come to him with a contrite heart do you see how you must how you must adopt embrace god's view of our sinfulness if you view your sin as a mere hangnail instead of a compound fracture you'll continue to drag around a broken and mangled limb If you think of your sin as a mere cold instead of life-threatening cancer, you will not take radical steps necessary to treat your disease. You must see God's perspective. How can God now rightly declare David to be forgiven? We haven't addressed that question yet, have we? How can God say to David, your sins are put away? This is a vitally important question if we're to gain the full encouragement God intends from the passage. And I want you to just pause as we begin the conclusion and think about the ending here and think about what we're saying. If a man had murdered someone else's husband to cover up an affair, he was caught by the police and brought before a judge, what kind of a judge would let that man walk away with a simple sentence of saying, your sins are put away. Would you be okay with a justice system like that? Or would you think that system is broken? That is wrong. That man must pay. According to God's own word, David deserves death at least two times over. How then can God forgive. Paul answers in Romans 3, 25 and 26 when he writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as our propitiation. He did this to demonstrate his own righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, 
he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, at the time of Christ's death. So as to be just, sin did get punished. Paul continues, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How could God forgive David's sin? Because he was going to punish David's greater son. This sin did not go unpunished. The same way he forgives you and me is how he forgave David. Forgiveness is both free but immensely costly. And if you would have God's view of sin and grow in your walk with him, you must embrace the gospel's view of your sin. Someone else paid the price so that God could say to you, forgiven. That wasn't easy or cheap, but came at the greatest price imaginable. One pastor helpfully states, as much as David was convinced of the love and the compassion of God, it could not have dawned on his mind what it was going to cost God to answer this prayer. He knew enough to go to God, to throw his hopes on the compassion of God, but he had no idea what answering that prayer was going to cost him. And it's the same. Every time you go to God and ask for the forgiveness of your sins, you truly have no idea what that sin is fully costing your God to forgive. Do you understand what it means that he forsake forsook his own son on the cross? Can you understand the depth of the breaking of that relationship? That he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin? And God answers the prayer. When we pray, God be merciful to me according to your loving kindness according to the greatness of your compassion. So do you see how important it is that we rightly understand our sin as ultimately and primarily rebellion and treason against a God who's like this? The gospel fruit of a God-centered perspective on sin should not leave us dismayed. It should delight us in the work of Christ. We should not leave this service looking at Psalm 51 in despair. We should be delighting in what God has done for us and have a greater determination in the battle against sin. How can you know a Christ like this and be casual about your sin? Soren Kierkegaard once prayed, Father in heaven, hold not our sins up against us but hold us up against our sins. So that the thought of you, when awakened, should not remind us of what we have committed, but of what you have forgiven. Not of how we went astray, but of how you saved us. So the hymn text rightly declares, guilty, vile, and helpless we, 
spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Gracious God, we need your word to see you for who we truly are, for who you truly are, rather. We need your word to show us who we truly are. Help us this morning to believe that our highest moment spiritually is potentially the one where we are most aware of how failing, how sinful, how unfaithful, how needy, how desperate we are. It is only then that we're even getting close to what we're really like and to what you want to give to us. Our desire this morning as we respond is to worship you. You are righteous in what you say about us. Your judgments are true and righteous altogether. We are a needy people. We are more aware of that now after looking at your word than we were when we began. And yet, even more importantly, we are more aware of your grace that is greater than all our sins. We are more in love with a God who would send his own son to die for sinners. So help us then to respond with even greater humility, with greater love, with greater devotion, with greater obedience. You've said if we love you, we will keep your commandments. So grow our love for you. Help us to see Christ clearly as your spirit points to him again and again in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.